Pastor Mike Favares with Focal Point Ministries. I trust that the following recorded sermon will be a benefit and a challenge to your Christian walk. For more information about Focal Point Ministries, log on to our website at focalpointministries.org, focalpointministries.org, or call us toll-free at 888-320-5885. Well, there has been, as you might have noticed, lots of weddings around here lately. They just keep on coming here this time of year. And because of that, there's a lot of folks uh, caring very much about looking their best for those very important photos. There's a lot of concern about crisp white shirts and spotless dresses and uh, a lot of grooms and brides and parents and in-laws that want everyone to look their best. And that's no different than it's been for centuries. Matter of fact, in Bible times, it was exactly the same way. Jesus tells the story in Matthew 22 of a wedding where the host ends up booting out someone at the wedding because they were dressed in a t-shirt and flip-flops. I mean, it doesn't say that specifically, but that's the idea. You just didn't have on the right clothes. You weren't dressed right. You weren't cleaned up. You weren't ready for this. I mean, that is the picture that is depicted throughout the scripture as it relates to something that came to sharp focus in that illustration. And that is that there is a coming kingdom, a meeting with your maker, and you'd better be dressed properly. You'd better be cleaned up. That's the picture. And of course, that great banquet is coming. It's on the calendar. It is as sure as today came, that day will come. And the Bible says you better be cleaned up. That picture of being cleaned up, we see it everywhere. Because that picture of being dirtied or sullied or stained or blemished or spotted has to do with the idea of sin. That God is a holy God, a perfectly holy God. And he expects you to not have that sin on you. Now you see that illustration in reverse in some places. Like the uh, depiction in Mark of the transfiguration. Where Jesus reveals who he really is. And when he does that, Mark does this in particular as he describes it. He says he became radiant. And I love the way it's translated. Intensely white his clothing did. And then it says, like no gafus in Greek. I know the ESV just translates it like that no one, but the gafus, that no launderer, that no fuller, that nobody who washes clothes could ever bleach them that white. I mean, there's the idea in reverse that if you want to talk about God, he is the kind of God who is so holy that the depiction of him in this illustration, this analogy is that he's absolutely perfectly white, like a white outfit that you couldn't get any comparison to with the best dry cleaner or bleach you could ever put on clothing. That's how perfectly white he is. But you have a problem. You have sin. You have transgression. You have iniquity. You have compromise. And because of that, you're stained and sullied. Well, of course, the good news of the gospel, unlike all the rest of the religions in the world that are trying to help people kind of to kind of scrub out their own stains of their own sin and hopefully do enough good things to kind of counteract and offset the bad that they've done. Christianity offers this thing called the gospel, the good news. And the good news is that immediately, at a point in time, instantaneously, as God changes our hearts and drives us to true repentance and faith at that moment, though your sins are like scarlet, they become white like snow. Though they're deep red like crimson, they become white like wool. That there's a moment in time where because of what God promises that everything about your life that is stained and sullied becomes instantly before God perfectly white. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But we have a part in that. The part 
And it starts, and I'm quoting, if you don't know, Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18, which says that our sins are, are like scarlet. They become white as snow. They're, they're red like crimson, but they become white like wool. Well, it starts with this. Do you know the, do you know the verse? Oh, come, let us reason together. That's how it starts. That Hebrew word reason together that's translated reason is used in context of a courtroom where someone comes in and they're, they're going to, uh, they're going to describe and discuss and, and kind of get to the facts about a situation. Let's reason. Let's think. Let's, let's, let's talk this through. And of course, the book of Isaiah is all about the problem in Israel and there's so much sin and the nation as a whole corporately is blotted and blemished and, and sullied with sin. And each individual is. But he says, hey, you guys, individually, let's come and let's reason. Come into the courtroom and let's talk about the problem. As you stand before the judge who has, in this illustration at least, in our minds, white clothes, radiant white, intensely white, to use Mark's phrase, whiter than any launderer could ever bleach them. And you stand before him dirty. Come, let us reason together. Can you just talk about your dirt here and just to put it in modern terms, can you enter a plea? Are you going to somehow try and mount a defense as to why you got dirty? Are you going to try and explain that you couldn't avoid these grass stains? Or are you willing to come and confess? Are you willing to come and say what is evident to everyone watching and certainly to the judge that you're dirty? You can try and plead no contest can try and kind of find some kind of compromise and work some kind of plea deal. No, you, there's only one response before holy God. And that's the thing we see unpacked for us in one of the most famous psalms in the Psalter. And that's Psalm 51. The description of what it means for us to come clean before God. To be able to say in his courtroom, God, I realize I'm dirty. I realize I'm a sinner. The biblical word is confession. We're agreeing with God about the problem of our sin. If you haven't turned there yet, I want you to turn to Psalm 51. It's relevant to every single person in the room. And I'm not saying that because I'm saying, oh, this is an evangelistic message. You're talking about being right before God. I'm already a Christian, Mike. I've done that. I'm leaning back. I'll I'll pray for the guy down the aisle because maybe he's not saved. I'm not talking just about non-Christians here this morning. Matter of fact, let me make it very clear with an analogy that's very similar. certainly has the same overtones. When Jesus there, on the night before he was crucified, he said to the disciples, hey, I want to wash your feet. And Peter said, no, you're never going to wash my feet. And Jesus said, if I don't wash your feet, you have no part with me. And he said, oh, well, then just wash everything, of course. I mean, pour the basin over my head, wash my whole body. And he said, no, 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 you're already clean. You believe me, you trust me. We're already connected. You're my disciple. You're a child of God. But your feet get dirty. Your feet get dirty and they need to be cleaned. And you need to know they need to be cleaned. So he takes the apron and the basin and he starts to wash the disciples' feet. What a great image, isn't it? Oh, you can already have been bathed, so to speak. You're a Christian. You sit here today. You say you've been a Christian for 20 years. Great. Fantastic. You know your name's written in the Lamb's Book. Like, great. You come into this auditorium today and your feet, I assure you, are dirty. You can't walk through this world for seven days without it. And you come into an auditorium like this. You read a passage about confession. Don't think this applies to the guy down the aisle. It applies to every single person in the room. Because you and I can't live a day without doing something to sully 
the Christian life that we're called to keep pure without spot or wrinkle. That's what God would want for our clothing, our behavior. But in our minds and in our hearts and in our activities and in our attitudes and in the words that we say, there are all these things that sully the Christian life. So if you're non-Christian, all this applies. I get that. And I hope you'd come to repentance by confessing your sins. It starts with that. But if you're a Christian here today, I don't care if you're the most godly person in the room. This is a passage for you, which by the way, the man who writes this was a pretty godly man. I know he's talking about his sin here and his sin is notorious and God made sure in his providence that there was a notorious sin so that we could learn something about godly people. But in this passage, this godly man, a man that was called a man after God's own heart is showing us in a right relationship with God. It's time for him to come clean about sin in his life. Now you know the sin. Look at the superscription here above verse 1. This says here to the choir master, of course, it's going to be a song. So it's filled with a lot of lyrics that sometimes are poetic and sometimes there's hyperbole and all that. I understand the genre, but it's a psalm of David, comma, not period. Not like a lot of them where we just say, okay, well, this is a Davidic psalm. David wrote it. But this is when Nathan the prophet went into him. Now, you know the story, I hope. After he had gone into Bathsheba, Bathsheba, his neighbor's wife, he ends up having her husband killed. He impregnates her, tries to cover it up. Nathan the prophet comes in and says, hey, let me tell you a story. It brings him to conviction. He recognizes his transgression. Well, he'd already recognized it, but it was time for him to confess it. It's time for him to come clean. And when Nathan says, you are the man, David says, I have sinned. I have sinned. Those three words are unpacked in these 19 verses, and we want to look at them today. Let's read them through quickly. I'll read from the English Standard Version But verse 1, here's David's heart. I've sinned. Now I'm asking for this. Have mercy on me. I know I deserve a lot. What, by the way, is the judgment of the Mosaic law for adultery and murder? It's a capital offense. You should die for that. You should be brought before the leaders of the nation. You should be stoned with stones. Your body should be left under a pile of rubble and you should die there of your injuries, suffocating, if nothing else, hemorrhaging under a pile of rocks. But he asks, have mercy on me. God, don't let that happen to me. God, I know I've sinned, but have mercy on me, O God, according to your, we we encounter this word all the time in our study of the Psalms, hesed, the Hebrew word hesed, that, that loyal, faithful, covenant love You've brought me into relationship with you. You've set your love on me. You've called me your son, your child. Now, based on your love for me, would you be merciful to me? According to your abundant mercy. I've seen you be merciful to other people. I've watched your mercy in my life in the past. Now, this is big, and I've blown it, and I'm coming and asking for mercy. Would you blot out my transgressions? It's like a big stain, and I need you to scrub it out. Take it away. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me oh I feel it I know it as he says in Psalm 32 it's like his bones were wasting away as he covered his sin your hand he says was heavy upon me like the fever heat of summer it was like going through the desert and I wanted to drink and it was so hard I felt it and I know this verse 4 against you And you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. 
I can have a hard time convincing Uriah's family of that. I mean, this is a statement, clearly, of hyperbole, because there's no sin you commit. It's not against someone. I mean, there's a few, I suppose. But most of the sins you feel guilty about when I say, hey, this morning, let's think about your sin. It's probably damaged someone. And yet David says, I know this is ultimately about you. Against you. And really, in comparison, it's only you in the sense that you are the one most grievously hurt, the holy God with bleached white clothing, so to speak. You are the one who looks at this filth and you are disgusted by it. I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that, judge, you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment if you were right now to say, drag the king out of his palace and have him killed in the Kidron Valley, you would be absolutely 100% justified and blameless and no one can say, why is God being so hard on David? You're completely justified. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. That doesn't mean his mother was some uh, philanderer. It doesn't mean that some kind of illegitimate birth is being confessed here. This is about something we see throughout the Psalms of a life that from the very beginning has a propensity for sin. I've brought forth an iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. I was sinful from the beginning. If you want proof for that, Psalm 58. We're not even preaching this passage yet. I'm just trying to read it, which I always have trouble with, but Psalm 58, 3 speaks of the same thing, this propensity to sin from the womb. What do you want? Well, behold, you delight in truth and the inward being. You want me to be honest. You want me to be honest about my sin. You want me to be truthful. You want me to be in sync with you. You teach wisdom. You teach me wisdom in the secret heart, in the place where no one can see. I feel it. I know it. I'm, I'm off with you because of your standard, because of what you've taught me, what I know is true. Purge me with hyssop. And I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you've broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. And there it is again. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence. And take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I'd give it. You will not be pleased with a, with a burnt offering. No, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion. In your good pleasure, build up the walls of Jerusalem. A lot of people think this is some kind of post-exilic appendage to the psalm, and David didn't write that. But does not this make perfect sense? He's just sinned. He's the king. He should rightly be brought out into the Kidron Valley and stoned to death. And he's concerned about now the integrity and the safety and security of his, of his capital city and of the nation, of course. He wants the walls of Jerusalem to be built up metaphorically. Please, shore us up. Save this organization, this nation. And when you do, when your favor turns to us in forgiveness, then you'll delight in right sacrifices. Not that you're against sacrifices. You just want my heart to be broken about my sin. And then in burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings, man, you're going to be glad. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. A very expensive offering, by the way, a bull. Very simple if you glance through the first six verses. 
Let's just jot it down. Three words, two of them for you to write down in your worksheet. Confess your sins. That's what this psalm is about. And David is doing it. He says, I know I've sinned iniquity, transgression, sin, transgression, sin. I mean, look at the words. I've sinned. I've done evil. He's being very clear. As a matter of fact, in verse number three, let's learn a little bit about how we ought to confess our sins. He says, I know my transgressions. And my sin is ever before me. Do you know your transgressions? I mean, do you know as you sit here today, I know how I've sinned against God this morning, last night, yesterday, last week. Do you know them? It starts with that. You really have got to be specific. You'd better confess your sins with specificity, with clarity. This is the problem. This is how I've sinned against you. The world doesn't get this. They shrug their shoulders. No one's perfect. Yeah, I'm sure I've blown it. And if you don't know how you've transgressed the Lord and sullied your feet this week, here, I'll, I'll help you. Very simple. And I can be quiet for 30 seconds, and this would all be fixed. You just ask God with all sincerity, show me my sin. That's all you have to do. Psalm 139. Search my heart. Try me. I mean, look inside of me. See if there's any wicked way in me. Show me how I've sinned. You want a prayer that God will always answer? That's it. You just got to be honest about it. As long as he knows what you're going to do in response to his answer to that prayer. If you're going to shrug your shoulders and say, well, no one's perfect. And I know that guy down the aisle. He's got worse sins than me. You're going to play that game? I'm sure God's going to be like, hey, when you're ready to be honest about your sin, I'll show it to you. But do I really need to even say that for most of you? If I say, hey, let's talk about your sin this morning. Let's talk about your iniquity, your transgression. Those are good words, by the way. Iniquity that's used in this passage has to do with twisting the truth, twisting what's good, twisting the right standard, perverting it. This is what I want, but you're doing it in a way that I know is not right. It's not the way I asked you to do it. Transgression is obvious, right? No trespassing, transgression. You've crossed the line that you know you shouldn't have crossed. The boundary's right there, and you played at the edge of that border, and you finally stepped over it. And whatever it is, that's the transgression. If I say, let's talk about your sin this morning, I, I mean, I'm sure there's something there in the category of transgression. Or how about just the word sin, avon, in, in Hebrew, that, that idea, hamartia in Greek New Testament is the same concept, falling short. You don't go as far as you should. God says, step up and do this, and you just haven't done it. You fall short of his standards. Plenty of categories we could talk about. Oh, David's sins, we know. They're big in this passage. I mean, they're big. They're notorious. They're egregious. He's a murderer and an adulterer. Maybe you're coming in and saying, well, I didn't murder anybody. I'm not committing adultery this week. That's fantastic. But you do understand transgression, iniquity, sin, evil, it's called in this passage. I mean, God would look at things that may be very respectable in our day, worry, I mean, who's really going to feel like you're a sinner because you worry and you're anxious? Well, the Bible says don't do that. Be anxious for nothing. How about dissension, rivalry, envy, coveting, strife? How about the use of your mouth in a way that God says, I don't want you to say those things. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth. How about the idea of just lying? Flattery is a form of lying. 
I mean, we work our way through conversations so often, we cross the line of truth all the time. When Isaiah was confronted with his sin, that's the first thing he felt. I'm a man of unclean lips. Maybe there's a callousness in your heart. You know that kind of desensitizing to God's spirit? I mean, that, that, that's sin. Maybe there's that kind of passivity toward things you know you should be passionate about. Maybe you're passionate about things you know you should be passive toward. Maybe there's that engagement in things that you just know are nothing other than a selfish indulgence. Whether it's your relation to alcohol, your relation to pornography, whether your heart is drawn to things that you know are really to the exclusion of your responsibilities, but it's there, you see it, and you walk into it, and you recognize it. And when I say, let's talk about your sin, or you say, God, show me my transgression. See if there's any evil or wicked way in me. God says, that's it right there. Sermon does no good if we don't identify our sins. To confess your sins is to agree with God. Not that, hey, you know, no one's perfect, man. It's saying to God, I have done this right here. Do you know with specificity what your sins are? The blasphemy that comes out of your mouth you didn't even realize? There's so much sin in our world. The world is so dirty and dusty that sometimes we think a little dust on our feet, a little dirt on our sandals, no big deal. Jesus looked at Peter and said, if I don't wash your feet, I have no part with you. There's a real problem in our relationship if we don't wash your feet. Boasting, pride, mockery, deception, rebellion, compromise, lust, worry, covetousness, hatred, dissension, grudges, conceit, intimidation, complaining, materialism, stubbornness, ingratitude, apathy, strife. The Bible has a lot to say about these things because all of these things are things we need to confess. David said in verse 3, I know my transgressions. I just want to make sure we don't get through this passage without saying the same. I know my transgressions. And if you ask God, he'll make clear. He'll put that sin right before you. And then you can say in verse number 4 with David, this is a problem not for me, not for others, not for the people that are hurt by my sin. Ultimately, this is a problem with you. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. I'm concerned about what you think, God, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Here's the sincerity with which confession should take place. That you say, in all sincerity, I know I should be punished. I know that. I mean, not many people standing in a courtroom this week in our county saying, I am guilty and I know I deserve to be punished. And if you punish me, there is, no one should be able to say anything about it. Do you ever think about hell as a Christian? Besides just saying, I'm so grateful I'm not going there. Do you ever think about the fact that that's exactly where I belong? I mean, every now and then when you have that thought, that's exactly where I belong. Away from the presence of God and the glory of his power. Depart from me, I never knew is exactly what I should hear. That's a kind of sincere confession. We should confess with specificity and we should confess with sincerity, a deep sincerity that says, if you were to judge me, I mean, no one should stand by and object to that because I am guilty because I've sinned against you. And you have the power to punish me and I should be punished. 
more than that, verse 5, look at it. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity. As I said, Psalm 58.3 makes this case very clear. It talks about sinners being estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth. Psalm 58.3. That's the idea here. In sin did my mother conceive me. I was wrong and messed up from the beginning. You know, when you start looking back at your own life, and of course all you can do is hear people talk about you when you were a tiny little baby, but when you can think back to the earliest thoughts that you think, and you look within your own memory about what your mind was doing, whether it's four years old or five years old or three and a half or six, whatever you can remember. You ever look back at your life and say, man, I am ashamed at the way my life just works. I mean, I have been sinning from the beginning. You've delighted and wanted, verse 6, truth in the inward being, and I can't even think about that as a pattern and practice of my life. Oh, I can think about people patting me on the head as a little kid going, yeah, isn't he a a, a dutiful, good little church-going boy? But I know my own memories, and I know my own heart. You want three things? You should confess your sins with specificity, with sincerity, and with shame. I know we think shame is a bad thing. No one should ever feel it. And the world's going to seek as hard as they can to flee from it. If you don't feel shame over your sin, man, I'm telling you, this very clear in 2 Corinthians 6, then there's no repentance. And if there's no repentance, there's no forgiveness. We need to be ashamed of our sin. The very thing the world says you should never feel is the doorway to being forgiven. Confess your sins specifically, sincerely, and with shame in your heart. I'm ashamed. I'm ashamed of the pattern of my life. Ephesians 2 verse 3 reminds us that we all lived as the pattern of our life in the passions of our flesh. Think back to the earliest memories you have. Think back to what you were as a, as a school age kid. In the passions of my flesh, it dominated. Even if I didn't pass by the parameters of what my parents saw or my Sunday school teachers saw or my youth pastor saw, I, in my heart, I was driven by the passions of my flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and mind, and I was by nature a child of God's anger, of God's wrath, just like the rest of mankind. That's a shameful thought about the sin of our humanity. That's good confession. Really? Came to church to be encouraged. You want to be encouraged? Can't be encouraged without this. Because you know all you'll get is people papering over a sinful, prideful, selfish, spoiled, unpenitent heart. That's what churches will do, and that's what sermons will do, and that's what Christian books will do. They'll paper over your sin and try to make you feel good, but nothing has really happened between you and God. You're just bathing in common grace and you've never experienced saving grace. Saving grace starts with the fact that I look at my sin and I say, God, you're right specifically about this, this, and this. All these things are absolutely wrong. I'm sincere to the core of my being that you are the one I've sinned against and you'd be justified to punish me. And you know what? I'm completely ashamed of my behavior. That's good confession. I say it often from this platform, and I hope you hear it often, and I hope you discuss it often in your small groups. You cannot experience the good news of the gospel. That's what gospel means, good news, until you experience the bad news of sin. You cannot in any way embrace the great news of forgiveness until you've really owned the depth and shame of your sin. 
But the rest of the sermon is about that. It's about the great news of forgiveness. As a matter of fact, look at verse 7. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. That is the thought of David who knows the greatness and power of God that God can take my sin and though it's red like scarlet, though it's deep red like crimson, it can be white like snow, white like wool. And I believe that. An interesting word here, purge. Which, by the way, don't look this stuff up on, on Wikipedia, right? I made that mistake. I wonder what the world thinks of this passage. I think this is about vomiting. This is not about vomiting. They don't know Hebrew. They don't know language. They don't know theology. They don't know anything when they're dealing with passages like this. Purge with hyssop. Hyssop is a plant. You know that. It's like you would see it growing between the, the walls. Remember, if you've been to Israel, even maybe you've seen those old stone walls from Herod's epic Herod's period and it's like a like a almost like a weed when it dries out when it's not dried out I mean it looks like a plant and it's got a lot of of tight texture to it and the first connection we have as it being used in the scripture in some utilitarian way it's when we're told in Exodus chapter 12 that we're supposed to on the night of the Passover put blood on the doorpost of our homes so that the angel of death would pass over and we wouldn't be punished well the Bible says take hyssop I'm going to cut off a piece of this branch that looks like kind of a an arid piece of cauliflower I guess just a, a big branchy thing and you take it like a paintbrush and you hold it down here and you kill that lamb and you dip that thing like a paintbrush, a big bushy paintbrush in the puddle of that lamb's blood and then you go over and you paint over the top of the doorpost. That's the picture. A hyssop branch. Purge me with hyssop. Now David is living in the 10th century B.C. 10th, 11th, 10th century B.C. Passover was in 1445 B.C. So for 400 years, we look back at the Passover and we recognize that historical picture. Well, then the Levitical law, as they came into the wilderness, said there's several things you do in these ceremonies that reflect that picture of the redemption in the Passover by having ceremonies with a hyssop branch and blood. One of them was, for instance, the killing a bird when you had leprosy. Talk about being stained in, in, in your very skin. And you've got this horrible disease. And if you have a remission of that and you start to get better and you think I'm all clear, you're supposed to go to the priest, disrobe there. He's supposed to look at your skin and make sure you have no signs of leprosy. And if you don't, he takes the hyssop branch, he kills the bird, he dips the hyssop in the blood of that bird, and then he sprinkles it on your body. And that was the picture that this person is clean. All his leprosy is gone. It was symbolic, of course, because God did the cleaning, but it was symbolic of that. And sometimes it was used even with a, a, a symbolism of water. You were to take the water and you were to sprinkle that on people or on things. Levitical law talked about uh, your contact with a dead body. And ceremonially, if you wanted to come back into the temple, you had to be clean. And to be clean, the hyssop branch would dip in water and the water would be symbolic of you now being washed clean purging you of the ceremonial uncleanness, purging you of the disease of your skin, cleaning you. That's the picture. And it shouldn't really be hard for us to recognize what's being communicated here through the Hebrew parallelism of purge me with that hyssop and I'll be clean. I want to be clean. Just like those ceremonies back from 400 years earlier. Wash me, God. Obviously, this is not his body. This is his spirit. This is his heart. And I'll be whiter than snow. This, by the way, is why people don't like grace. They don't like forgiveness. 
Forgiveness is a point in time where you are made right with God. But you ought to recognize the difference between people in the world that don't like that, who always want to earn their way. That's why Catholicism, with its perverted sense of salvation, tries to get you to think that somehow you work with God to somehow work this problem of sin off. And if you don't get it all burned off, which no one will, they say, you'll go to a place called purgatory and purge the rest of your sin away. Well, God says, I'll purge you right now, instantaneously, qualified and white as snow. You just need to embrace that truth. Number two on your outline, we need to embrace forgiveness. Confidently embrace forgiveness. I'm going to say, this is what God said. He will make me right now white as snow. I should be guilty. I should be condemned. This is a capital offense, but I'm asking for God's mercy out of the abundance of his hesed, his love and kindness. I want God right now to make me completely white before him. All my sin that's red like scarlet washed away. You want to confidently embrace forgiveness, you ought to confidently embrace it because the payment has been made. Now, everything in the Old Testament ceremonial law with all this gross blood being splattered around was an image of the blood that would actually atone for our sin. And that didn't happen with the blood of bulls and goats. That happened with the blood of Christ, where he on that cross was the focal point of the Father's justice. And he says, hey, you know what adulterers and murderers should be? They should be punished by God. I'm going to put Jesus on a cross and treat Jesus, as though he were King David, walking across and having his servants grab Bathsheba and then scheming to get him killed with Joab, all of that, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to treat Jesus as though he were David. And the blood that is shed in that biological death with that absorption of God's justice, I'm now going to take all of David's sin and expiate it and remove it. And in that moment, he'll be whiter than snow. All of that Old Testament stuff was a picture of the payment. The reason I can stand here, unlike a lot of religious systems, even those that bear a cross over the head of the priest that's there in a pulpit this morning, is because I believe what the Bible says about the power of the forgiveness of the death of Christ because he said on the cross to telestai, paid in full. That's the Greek word, counting word, paid in full. It's all done, paid in full. God has the ability to pay for every ounce of God's anger, disappointment, frustration about my sin this week by putting it all on Christ and everything now between God and I being completely made right. I'm confident in embracing my forgiveness and you should be too because you, after confessing your sin, now are going to focus on the payment, the payment. I believe that God paid the payment. It's paid in full. Come over to your house for lunch my daughter carelessly picks up an expensive vase in the front room of your house tries to see if she can juggle it she drops it and your $500 vase shatters on the ground I assume you'd be mad at my daughter and so you should but if I reached into my pocket pulled out $10,000 and said here I want to pay for that. I hope you'd feel a little better about the vase at that point. That $500 vase paid for with a $10,000 wad of cash. We'll go shopping for a vase tomorrow morning. It'll be okay. Jesus paid the payment. The one who should be mad at us is no longer angry with us because the payment has been fully paid. You confident in that payment? He says in verse 8, let me hear joy and gladness. 
Who can be joyful and glad when they really are a murderer and an adulterer and they really should be feeling such bad guilt that God hates them and is mad at them and wants to kill them? No, let the bones that you've broken, how did that happen? It said in Psalm 32, he felt his bones wasting away, crushing weight of conviction. Those bones, all that guilt that I felt. Man, let me rejoice now. Replace the guilt with rejoicing. Why? Because here's the thing. I'm going to ask you to hide your face from my sin and blot out all of my iniquities. Whiter than snow, you're not going to see them. Now, why in the world do you think you could have that kind of dispositional reaction to sin in your life where you're going to be glad instead of guilty? You're going to be joyful instead of feeling justice should be paid on your head. Well, because you believe this. God's going to take your sin and no longer see them. He's going to hide his face from them. He's going to blot them out. Some of you think you're super spiritual when you feel guilty. as the poor, miserable worm. Maybe you've read some misleading Puritan theology that makes you think to feel really, really bad about yourself is the biblical response to the gospel. It's not. The biblical response to the gospel, the gospel, the good news, the biblical response to the gospel is joy and gladness. The biblical response to your sin is shame. The difference there is huge. You've got to see that. Yes, go through the portal, the shameful, terrible, sincere, specific portal of confession. But once you get out the other side, you take the guilt and it's replaced with joy and gladness. Why? Because God made a promise. You want a New Testament version of the promise? Here it is. If you confess your sins, he is faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. When he washes your feet, he does a great job. You want to talk about your relationship with God this week? You've sullied your feet. They need to be washed. Right now, you can confess your sins. Be very specific. Be very sincere. Be very shameful about those sins. And now you can embrace forgiveness because you know the payment was made. I believe it. And I believe your promise. There's been a payment and there's a promise. And the promise is, I'll forgive you. You confess it, I'll forgive you. But don't I have to work it off? Isn't there some kind of penance to do, some purgatory to experience? No, the answer is no. That is a perversion of the gospel. It's heresy and it's wrong. Sounds godly because it panders to your flesh that wants to earn it. I want to earn my way into God's family. I want to earn his forgiveness. Can't. Actually, that's a, an insult to the spirit of grace. Well, it seems impossible for me, a guilty person, to have any joy and gladness. Well, here's the good news. Look at the first word in verse 10. Create. Create. Something that's not there, make it be there. Something that I don't have, give it to me. Something that I can't do on my own, would you create it for me? Create in me a clean heart and renew a right spirit within me. God, I'm unholy. I should not be dwelling with a holy God, but cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from my sinful spirit. Don't do that. Please, I'm asking you, restore to me the joy of being saved. Now, this joy of salvation, so often in a temporal sense, as we've seen in our, our psalm study already, is often looking at deliverance from death on a battlefield or deliverance from a disease or deliverance from some temporal threat. Obviously, this goes to the big picture of salvation. Now, this is the idea we often see in the New Testament. We talk about salvation. We're talking about the fact that I should be punished by God. In his mind, he's thinking about being buried under a pile of rocks as a guilty adulterer and murderer. And he's saying, you know what? I want to be joyful. 
joyful that you've saved me and uphold me with a willing spirit. You can give me that. I mean, I hate to alliterate too much in one sermon. It's too much for you to handle, I know, but I mean, you can embrace forgiveness because there's been an amazing payment that has been paid. There's been promises that have been given. And then there's the power of God, the power of God to change your heart, to change your guilt into joy, to give you gladness when you should feel guilty. I told you the world isn't like the gospel. And I know that because anytime you hear of someone in a prison after being a rapist or a murderer or some cannibal or whatever, and then they come to Christ in prison, everyone's going, ah, I don't believe it. Well, what if it's true? I've heard the talk show hosts. I've heard the people in the newspaper. I've read the people's commentaries in the magazines. They don't like to think that somehow because you confess your sins to Christ, you get completely off the hook. I don't like that. That's why this hybrid of worldly thinking and Christian theology creates a kind of mishmash of theology that is absolutely abhorrent to the gospel. God forgives your sin instantaneously and you, though guilty, are now white like snow. And you can rejoice. Someone that should be dead under a pile of rocks can rejoice and say, thanks, you saved me. Confident in God's power. Jeremiah 13, 23, can the Ethiopian change his skin? Well, that'd be something really hard to do. I can't bleach out my melanin in my skin. Or a leopard change his spots? Nope. Then how can you who are evil do what's good? Well, that's the picture, is it not? Because the miracle of becoming a Christian is not just having him somehow forensically forgiving you of your sins. It's the miracle of regeneration. He changes your heart. And then as a Christian walking down the Christian life, we recognize that even every single day we confess our sins, there's that renewal of our spirit. There's a willing spirit that's reestablished in our heart. The power of God can do that. Don't stumble over verse 11, by the way. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. We're not talking about New Testament pneumatology here. 1 Samuel 16, 14. 1 Samuel 16, 14 spoke of the spirit of the Lord departing from Saul. The favor of Saul to lead the people departed. That was a picture of God withdrawing the favor, which he's going to revisit at the end of this great psalm, talking about God's support of the city of Jerusalem. God, I, I, I want you to support me in this work. Cast me not away from your presence. Take not your Holy Spirit from me. How does that work? How does the Holy Spirit of God dwell with a sinful spirit like yours? The Latin phrase that was used by Luther, the cry of the Reformation, of course, was sola scriptura. And if you're going to get back to sola scriptura, you're going to read passages like Romans chapter 4 when you read that the fact that God is going to, and this is a great Greek word, logizomai. I mean, it's used so many times in Romans 4 alone. Logizomai. He is going to credit you with righteousness. Credit you with that. Theologians like to talk about imputation. One of the Latin phrases that came out of the Reformation was, you are simultaneously, I'm going to translate it for you now into English, simultaneously just and sinner. You're simultaneously righteous before God and at the same time sinner. David is a sinner after he said to Nathan, I have sinned. And yet Nathan turns to him and says, your sins have been forgiven. God forgives you. 
Why? Because he's looking for confession. If you confess your sins, to put it in New Testament terms, he's faithful and righteous to forgive your sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Were there repercussions? Yes. Different sermon. Discipline? Sure. But David had all of his sins completely forgiven in that moment, imputed as though he were not the sinner that he was. And God now sees him. Look at the passage we just read. Whiter than snow. He shall be clean. He's got cause to rejoice because none of this sin is on his account. Logizomai. My daughter burned your house down. We're talking now about... I know she's caused a lot of trouble in this sermon. Maybe you're in a standard Orange County house. What's that? A million dollars? Your million dollar house burned down. And I said, hey, don't worry. I'm going to transfer to your account tonight $50 million. Go out and buy yourself a new home. Now, I can't do that, by the way, but if I could, all it would take is for me to get my bank to take the resources of my bank account and to transfer that to your bank account, and you could go out and write a check tomorrow to the realtor and buy a nice $40 million house. Save $10 million to furnish it. That would happen instantaneously through a wire transfer, through something that happens in our computers, and that is the logizomai of crediting you with something you do not have. The power of God does that. 40 times in the New Testament, 82 times in the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the pre-Christian translation of the Septuagint, that word is used, including in the passage that he quotes in Romans 4, which is Psalm 32, which is how happy is the man. Blessed is the man whom the Lord does not logizomai his sin against him. He does not credit him with that. He credits him instead of righteousness. He credits to him a right standing. Confess your sins. Confidently embrace forgiveness. Then it ends this way. I love verse 13. Then, now we have David saying, I'm going to do some things. Which, by the way, is a lot like what we saw a couple weeks ago, if you're with us, studying in Isaiah chapter 6, when our guest speaker came, and he talked about Isaiah's response to the holiness of God, and then he sees his sin, I'm, an un, you know, I'm, I'm ruined, woe to me, I'm ruined, I'm a man of unclean lips. And then the seraph flies over with a burning tong from the altar. Again, another picture of, of purging the sin and the impurity and touches his lips and he says, your sins are forgiven, you're made clean. And then God immediately asks a question. Hey, who's going to go for us? I got something to do. I got a nation here that needs to see their sin. I need someone to, who are we going to send? And Isaiah doesn't shrug his shoulder. Well, I'm not doing anything next week. No, he goes, here am I, send me. Me, me, me. Exactly what we see here. David experiences forgiveness, and then he does what forgiven people ought to do. It ought to be the turbocharged, you know, nitrous of the Christian life. Here it is. I will then teach transgressors your ways and sinners. I want to turn some sinners away from their sin. They're going to return to you. Just like I just returned to you. Let's talk about the few things that we see here. Number three, you need to maximize your forgiveness, just like David's doing. He's resolving like Isaiah did. Here am I, send me. And then God says, fine, I got some things for you to do. And guess what I want you to do? I want you to go show sinners their sin. Again, that's the bad news of the gospel. If we don't experience that shame, if our neighbors don't experience that regret, if our neighbors don't experience and our coworkers don't see that 
horrific sin against the holy God, they're not going to experience what we experience. So he wants to show transgressors, not my neighbors and my friends and pre-Christians. He goes, the bad people, I'm going to show them your ways. I want sinners to turn to you just like I've turned to you. Maximize your forgiveness by being, number one, more evangelistic. Matter of fact, one of the reasons you may not be sharing your faith at all in your Christian life Maybe you've not made this connection. Here, connect two dots. Maybe because you have sin, you are not confessing. You are running like David was from the conviction of God. His hand is heavy upon you, but you have no interest in opening your mouth about Christ to other people because you are not confessing your sin. Because if you did confess your sin, you would perhaps have joy and gladness and you would be able to get excited about the fact that God is a God of forgiveness. You'd be proclaiming the good news. You'd be, here's the word, ready for this? You'd be preaching the good news. I just hate as a preacher that people still use that word in such a negative way. I don't mean to preach to you, they say. I'm thinking, well, I do, right? I mean, that's my, it's my job. I want to I preach to you. And early on in my ministry, I remember years ago, I didn't like the word because I knew people used it in a bad way, so I'd say other things. I wouldn't talk about preaching. I'd talk about the talk we had. Or, I'm sorry. I got over that pretty quickly in my young days as a pastor. And I'm back to this great word in the New Testament. The Greek word is caruso. It means to proclaim it. It's good. You can be forgiven. Though your sins are like scarlet, they can be white as snow. Though they're red like crimson, they can be white like wool. That's a, that's a message to proclaim to transgressors and sinners. I want to preach that. I'm going to tell you at the end of this message, go out and preach this message to people. Preach it. Tell them. Proclaim it. That's a great word. Caruso was a word that was used of emissaries that would go before kings and bring the message of the king to people in the village and the city before the king got there. Proclaim it. And what's the news? Hey, the king is dressed in really, really intensely white clothes. You guys are dirty, but here's the thing. Right now, with a word, with a confession, with a sincere and shameful admission of sin, you can be white like snow. I want to teach transgressors your ways, the ways of your forgiveness, the ways of your purifying and purging. I want sinners to return to you. Look at verses 14 and 15. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation. And if you do that, look, my tongue will sing quietly of your righteousness. Underline the word quietly there. Do you see it? I'll do it loudly. I'm not going to sit there and mutter the words in worship. I'm going to sing aloud of your righteousness. Oh, Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. Old Testament equivalent of the word Caruso. I'm going to just let it, let it out. Let people hear it. Not only is your evangelism often an indicator of your failure to confess sin specifically and shamefully in your life, but maybe your lack of worship is the same. You need to be more evangelistic. You need to be more grateful. If you had a terrible debt that was about to evict you and I was to transfer millions of dollars into your account, I think you would sing about it. Small gifts you receive. Sometimes you think, I wish I hadn't received that because now I've got to write a thank you note. The dutiful thank you note. Don't look at me like you don't feel the same way sometimes. Oh man, do I have to write a thank you note for that? But if I gave you $5 million today, I'll bet you wouldn't struggle to write a thank you note. Luke 7, Jesus is having a dinner. This lady comes up, you might remember, weeping, using her tears to wash his feet and drying his feet 
back to that image of, of the feet in the ancient world again, with her hair. Jesus says to Peter, do you see this woman? I entered your house. No one gave me water for my feet. She's wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You gave me no kiss, but from the time I came in, she hadn't ceased to kiss my feet. You didn't anoint my head with oil, but she's anointed my feet with ointment. Therefore, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven, for she loved much. He who is forgiven little, loves little. It's not that you've been forgiven little. Peter needed to recognize his sin as dramatically and sincerely as the woman in that scene did. And he says, tell me who's going to love more. You need to be more grateful. And then lastly, this whole thing about sacrifices. No one's bringing animals to church. But in the modern equivalent, I mean, there's this thing called the offering that takes place every week. And here it is right here, a verse right here that everyone wants to hear. God's not delighting in your offerings. You don't want offerings from me. If you did, I'd give it. But you're not pleased with a burnt offering. You're not pleased with a check. You're not pleased with money. You're not pleased with putting money into the Compass 2020. You're not pleased with that. Well, praise God, I don't have to give my money away. It's not what's going to be said. As I read earlier, he's going to get down to the fact that you're going to delight, verse 19, in right sacrifices. What's the difference between sacrifices and right sacrifices? Well, I'm glad you asked. Verse 17, the sacrifices of God, here's how they start. They start with a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart over sin. Oh God, you're not going to despise that. And now, God, just strengthen our whole nation. Strengthen our city, he says. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. And then you're going to delight in right sacrifices. And burn offerings and whole burn offerings. And then these very expensive bulls. I mean, that's probably 15% of your weekly income. A bull. Bringing a bull. You're going to have this expensive thing, this check that's written to the church. And it's going to be offered on your altar. And you're going to go, I like that. When Paul was talking about the special project that was going on in Jerusalem, he speaks of the Macedonian believers. He says they gave themselves first to the Lord and then to us. And the picture in the context there is then they gave to this project. Giving is certainly something the Lord loves, but he doesn't love it in lieu of your confession. He loves giving as an extension of contrite hearts. You want to maximize your forgiveness, be more evangelistic, be more grateful, and then enjoy this. Be more connected with God because everything you do, whether it's serving, as I like to say, you go the extra mile or you stay the extra hour or you spend the extra dollar to serve the Lord. All of that is going to work. It's all going to be the kind of fulfilling relational connection with your king because it will be an extension of a relationship, a closeness. David could have offered sacrifices, and I'll bet that he did historically when God's hand was heavy upon him and he kept silent about his sin. He gave those offerings and God said, that's really not what I'm looking for right now from you, David. What I want is honesty about your sin. I'd like you to rejoice, be glad, because your sins have been blotted out. They're going to be blotted out, not by you doing penance or walking up the steps of the, of the palace or the temple on your knees and getting bloodied or saying Hail Marys or praying the rosary. You're going to have these all gone with a simple word of confession that is sincere and shameful and specific. God, we want to treasure and value our forgiveness knowing that you have demonstrated your love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. What a treasured possession we are. A gift that is offered up. A gift from the Father to the Son. A flock 
governed and directed by the Son to the Father. How privileged we are to be your children this morning, forgiven. So God, let us revel in forgiveness and celebrate that great forgiveness even now as we sing in Jesus' name. Amen.